All right, folks, we're back in Genesis this morning. One of the best people that God brought into my life was my father-in-law, Arden Van Eyten. Though, uh, well, really through his intervention, even before he met me, his daughter became my wife rather than an ex-girlfriend because of something stupid that I said to her. He provided her, uh, uh, her remaining college education after we were married because we really couldn't afford to do it. He always treated me with respect. He spent time with our children every time we went to visit there. And he was a man loyal to the Lord. There was nothing uh, that he ever did that would cause ill feelings between us. But that wasn't the case between Jacob and his father-in-law Laban, was it? We have found that Laban was even craftier than Jacob. He was a greedy man who would use people for his own advantage, even his own family, his own daughters. Yet God blessed him because of his relationship to Jacob. Jacob's skill and hard work made Laban a wealthy man. But all that begins to change now after Jacob's 14 years of service for his two wives, and the Lord began to turn the tables on Laban in order to provide Jacob's possessions that he might return home to Canaan. However, this changed the disposition of Laban toward Jacob. He no longer looked favorably at him, and uh, He actually is going to pursue Jacob with the idea of harming him or at least retrieving that which uh, Jacob took with him. But the Lord intervened and instructed uh, Laban that it was, uh, uh, he better be careful what he's going to do in relationship to Jacob. He's already told Jacob to return to his homeland. And now we come to the place where this conflict between the two men uh, becomes actively hostile. As the conflict between them increases, we find that God not only blessed Jacob materially, he also protected him from Laban's pursuit. And if we're faithful to the Lord and desire to obey his will, he's going to protect us as well. And we may have people in our life that act as enemies towards us at times. We have enemies of the soul that seek our harm, including the world in which we live and uh, the demonic forces of Satan and even our own flesh. But God will protect his people as they place their trust in him and they follow his directive. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful that these uh, stories of old still have application for us today. We realize, Lord, that even as we see the saints of old uh, flawed, often failing in faith, uh, we see ourselves there as well. We're thankful, Lord, today, though, that we do have your word. We have these stories with us for our encouragement every day. We're thankful, Lord, that we have the salvation of the Lord Jesus completed. And we're thankful we have the Spirit of God to help us obey your word. So as we come uh, to this uh, story today, help us to see that you protect us all along the way. And if we put our faith and trust in you, we really have nothing to fear in this world. 
We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want us to see here, well, really kind of uh, continuing last week's lesson, and that is that the Lord protects his people from their enemies. And the Lord protects Jacob in this situation numerous ways. And in verses 17 to 21, we see that the Lord protects Jacob's flight from Rachel's folly. And this will play out a little bit later in the narrative. In verses 17 and 18, again, we're reminded of Jacob's obedience now to God's command. Now, last time we saw how God changed the the attitude of Laban, and that really kind of enhanced Jacob's return to Canaan. God used it for that purpose. And in verse 3 and verse 13 of chapter 31, we see the Lord specifically telling Jacob, it's time to go. And in verse 13, when God says, now arise, that has a sense of urgency about it, that the Lord knows Jacob is in peril and he wants him to go now. And Jacob begins to do that uh, almost immediately, as in verse 17, he did rise up, he sets his sons and his wives on camels, and off they go. And uh, they would have perhaps gone before uh, all the flocks and the other servants helping Jacob because camels will travel faster than the, the sheep and the goats will. So that was kind of a protective action on his part. And later on, we're going to find that a camel's saddle comes into the picture as well. Jacob then, in verse 18, carries everything he's gained by God's blessing and uh, providence uh, in Paddan Aram. And if you think about it, this is really kind of predictive of what's going to happen in the future to the nation of Israel when God brings them out of Egypt. Israel spent 400 years of captivity there, serving as slaves under an oppressor. Jacob has served many years under an oppressive man, and now the Lord is is blessing him as he goes out. He has great possessions, and in the future, the Israelites will despoil the Egyptians when they go out, and God will protect them from those people as well. However, in the story, verse 19, we discover that Rachel has done something very foolish. We're told that Laban has gone to shear his sheep. Now that's perhaps providential because at this time, it's the busiest time of the year. The, the sheep are out there in different places in the fields. They're far away from the home and he and his sons have gone there and his servants to, to shear the sheep. So they're far away. Uh, they're not going to be uh, 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 near enough to find out what's going on here. And at some point, Rachel steals the household gods or idols. In the Hebrew, this word is teraphim. Now, we're not exactly uh, positive what these items were. Uh, There's no real description. Archaeologists have found such figurines. But uh, in other places, this is translated gods or idols Um, things of that nature. And it seems they were uh, figurines of different sizes that the ancients viewed as protection by the gods. And perhaps 
thought to give them guidance, such as when Laban used divination. So it's possible they may have been also associated with family inheritance. The one who had the gods in their possession would be the one who inherited the largest part of the estate of the family. But we think about this, we wonder why would Rachel steal these items? Well, it may well be that she was not free from uh, the polytheism of her region and her family. We're not exactly sure about that. We know she did call upon the Lord. So it seems more likely that this was an act of retaliation against her father. The verb to steal here means to steal the heart of. It's used five times in our passage, and it comes out later that one of the major regions Laban pursues Jacob is to retrieve these household um, idols. They were something that Laban set his heart on and valued very highly. And if they were made out of precious metal, as many were, that would make them even more valuable in his eyes. And I think Rachel took them to get back at her father for how he had treated his daughters and her husband Jacob. So she took away Laban's heart in the sense of stealing something that he placed immense value on. Now, we might understand Rachel's motives, but what she did was wrong and really foolish because we're going to find out that that act of retaliation put the family in more peril. And acts of retaliation never help resolve poor relationships between people. As the story plays out, God will providentially protect the family from Rachel's foolish action. Now, Jacob then, in verse 21, he flees with all he had. Verse 20 says, Jacob stole away. Guess what? Same verb. The idea of stealing the heart. Now, many modern versions translate the word deceived or tricked. He deceived Laban by going away in this way. And although stealing the heart is an idiomatic expression for deceit, we have to wonder if Jacob really did deceive Laban by leaving. God didn't tell Jacob, now I want you to go to Laban and ask his permission to leave. No, he just said, I want you to leave, and I want you to leave immediately. To steal away secretly seems to be the right tactic. It also heightens the suspense, especially when we know that Rachel has stolen these teraphim. Now, Jacob's flight ends his sojourn in Haran. You remember that when he left Canaan, his mother Rachel said, rise up and go to Haran. And he fled because of the way Esau felt about him. Now God says, rise up and go back to Canaan. And he's fleeing from Laban, whose attitude toward him was uh, not good either. 
but God now is guiding him back to the land. So he crosses the river, that would be the Euphrates River. He heads south to the land of Gilead, which is located on the east side of the Jordan River, south of uh, the Sea of Galilee. This would have taken several days. And we should also note here that it speaks of Laban as the Syrian. And that's mentioned a number of times here. And we're going to find that Jacob is now going to be separated from that context. It's going to be Jacob who is uh, defined as Hebrew. And there's a separation that's going to take place between these ethnic groups. The second thing we find here is that the Lord protects Jacob from Laban's fierce pursuit. In verses 22 to 35. Now, it doesn't take long for Laban uh, to learn about his flight, but long enough for Jacob to at least get a three-day uh, advantage in time. Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled, that he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey. So in around 10 days, he catches up uh, to uh, Jacob, and he overtakes him in the mountains of Gilead. So Jacob has arrived where he wanted to be, and Laban has found him there. Now, this was a rash action on Laban's part, but we would really expect it. Uh, fortunately, Jacob is already uh, well ahead of him, and he's not going to get caught along the way. And it's interesting that the verbs to pursue, and then later down in verse uh, 25, pitching the tent. These are really um, military terms, and they suggest the possibility of harm. When Laban caught up to Jacob, he pitched his tent in opposition to him. In other words, Jacob's group would be on this mountain, and Laban's would be on this mountain, and it kind of looks like a military array that you would have in a time of war. And then we have this idea of the stealing away again in the passage as um, uh, Laban catches up to him and makes some ac accusations. <clears throat> and uh, one commentator noted uh, that this phrase alludes to taking away a person's ability to discern and act appropriately. So Laban's not thinking about some things here. He's not thinking about the truth that he admitted that he was blessed through Jacob, that God had used Jacob to bless him. He's angry, he's upset, he's rash, he's not thinking straight. Another commentator said this, Rachel steals away Laban's means of divination, Jacob his ability to act rationally. So that idea of stealing away comes out again here. But the Lord providentially intervenes on Jacob's behalf. Look at verse 24. He comes to Jacob in a dream and he warns him, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither, neither good nor bad. You need to be careful what you say to him because you're going to be accountable to me uh, uh, for what uh, happens here. All right, so Laban then 
as he catches up, he comes to Jacob, and we have this discourse here. Uh, Laban begins to accuse Jacob of all kinds of wrong behavior. Down to verse 26, he says, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me? Now, we've seen that question numerous times so far in the book of Genesis, and it's always a question that assumes wrongdoing. It's actually the same expression that Jacob used when he discovered that Laban tricked him over Leah. He says, what have you done? So now the tables are reversed, and Laban comes to, to Jacob with the same um, accusation. And he accuses Jacob here of taking away his daughters like they're POWs, uh, prisoners of war, which would indicate he's doing this against their will. But we already know that they agree with Jacob and his departure, and uh, they're against their father, and they don't say anything uh, one way or the other here. So this is kind of coming out against Laban as well. Now, he then says that what Jacob has done, well, let's back up here a little bit. Um, why did you flee away secretly? Okay, verse 27, and steal away from me again and not tell me, for I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp, and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters goodbye. Now, folks, from what you know about Laban, do you think that that was a bunch of baloney? <clears throat> Laban wouldn't give anybody anything freely. He's always looking out for himself. It's highly uh, sarcastic that, uh, if, to, to believe that he would send them away with thongs and timbrel and harp in a big party where they would uh, have a big feast at his expense. We haven't seen him doing anything like that. And I'm sure that's what uh, Jacob and his two wives and the servants who were associated with him were probably thinking as well. All right, and as Jacob uh, is accused of these things, secretly fleeing, this is Laban's attempt to make himself look like a victim bereft of his children. Uh, uh, he's not able to kiss them goodbye, send them away with gifts and such like that. So uh, he then says to, to, to Jacob that he has done foolishly. All right. Um, obviously, he's saying that to make Jacob look bad in the eyes of his wives, his children, and his servants, and to make himself, again, look like a victim here in the situation. And then in verse 29... He says, it is in my power to do you harm. Well, he's still thinking that, but uh, he shouldn't be. And he does, to his credit, reveal the truth that God came to him in a dream, revealed uh, himself to him, and told him he needs to be careful about what he does. So Laban may make that claim that he has power to harm or hurt uh, Jacob and his company, but he's not going to do it if he is at all got any sense. All right, and note here, uh, as we think about God revealing himself to him in that dream, how he addresses the Lord. 
Verse 29, the God of your father spoke to me. Not the God of my father. That's going to come to play in a little bit as well. Now, as we come down to verse 30, we see that Laban at least understands why uh, Jacob might want to leave and go back to his family. And of course, in his mind, he should have asked about this, uh, and, and it should have been done in this way. And he says, now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. And that was probably his true statement. But then he throws in, why did you steal my gods? Well, I don't know about you, but does that sound kind of ridiculous to you? How can you steal somebody's gods? How can a god let you steal him? It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But he's referring to the teraphim, his idols, his, his household gods, and you had the audacity to, again, steal them away. Well, Jacob's uh, thinking about this, and Jacob's going to respond here. Uh, everybody knows that at this point, Laban's not coming across in a very good way. Everybody knows what his character's like. They know he wants to retrieve uh, the things that he has lost because Jacob has left. And one of the most important things inspiring his pursuit is the loss of his teraphim. And he wants to at least get them back. Now, Jacob's explanation is very simple. Verse 31, this is why he fled. And this is the truth. Because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. Now, Laban's hot pursuit would only prove and reinforce that fear, wouldn't it? He's kind of proving the very reason why Jacob left in the first place. Of course, he doesn't say that God told me to do this. But he was afraid because of the changed um, attitude of Laban. And then in verse 32, he speaks about the household gods. And he makes kind of a rash statement here. Whoever you find your gods with, don't let him live. And then he says, go ahead and, and look and try to find these things and bring them out here and let everybody see. But he doesn't know that indeed Jacob ha uh, uh, Rachel has taken them so he's unaware of, of what's going on. <clears throat> now, this all could have gone very badly if those had been discovered. Rachel would have been liable with her life. And uh, the, the tension is starting to build up as the story moves forward. Jacob leaves secretly. Laban doesn't just let him go. He pursues him. He has harm on his mind. God enters the picture and says, you better be careful. Then he comes and he makes these accusations and tries to make himself look good. And now he's accusing Jacob of stealing his gods. Jacob's totally under, unaware of what has happened. And he invites him to come and uh, search everything. And if it is indeed found, whoever it's with is going to die, not knowing that that would be Rachel. So, what happens? Verse 33. Now, imagine this. Make this into a, a movie in your mind, how this would all play out. 
Laban is going from tent to tent. And maybe as he's going in there, he's flinging things all over the place, trying to find where his gods are, searching in this place and that place. And first of all, he goes into Jacob's tent. Then he goes into Leah's tent. Then he goes into the maid's tents. And the last place he goes then is Rachel's tent. So if you're watching this on the big screen, the tension's building up. Is he going to find the teraphim or not? Well, the story goes into Rachel's tent. And Rachel, uh, in a sense, saves the day with her quick wit, although she's still being deceptive. Remember, nobody knows about this theft or where these teraphim are or even if they're in uh, any of the tents except for Rachel. And she has now hidden them in the saddle of her camel. And when her dad comes in, she's sitting on the saddle. Now, she had taken the household idols, verse 34, put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but he didn't find them. And she says, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you for the manner of women is with me. So normally, if your father came in in that culture, you would stand up out of respect. But she says she can't do it because she's having her monthly difficulty. And she's sitting on the, those idols uh, and preventing him from searching the saddle, which maybe he wouldn't even have been able to see that well with her uh, clothing. And so he continues to search, and we wipe our brows and he didn't find anything. Now what's interesting here is uh, Rachel and what she has done here And whether her excuse was true or not, it prevented her father from finding the gods. But it also does something else. It evidences Rachel's disdain for these figures. She's sitting on supposedly divine figures in her time of impurity. And one commentator wrote this. It implies an attitude of willful defilement and contemptuous rejection of the idea that Laban's cult objects had any religious worth. You couldn't do anything worse than that to um, defile something somebody might have thought was related to a god or was a god. So, Perhaps this is Rachel's final retaliation against her father for stealing her husband and forfeiting her bride price. Well, the Lord providentially uses this ruse to protect the unwary Jacob and all that belongs to him. And sometimes the Lord protects us even when we act foolishly in retaliation to those who have hurt us. So again, God can take something that's been done wrong and use it in his providence to protect us. Of course, uh, we shouldn't be using that methodology to seek his protection. All right, that brings us to the next scene. What happens now when there's no evidence brought that uh, support the claims of Laban? 
Well, in verses 36 to 42, the Lord, uh, pro, uh, the Lord's protection is professed by Jacob as he exposes Laban's oppression. So now we're going back again, reciting the past 20 years from Jacob's perspective, similar to what he uh, described to his wives to get them to come with him. And we see again, he's, he's professing the Lord's protection of him in spite of how Laban abused him. And he's kind of like laying out a case. Verse 36. Now Jacob was angry. And he rebuked Laban, and Jacob answered Laban and said, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you search all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. Now, at this point in time, because of his uh, lack of knowledge, that Rachel took these items, his anger is righteous. And the verb to rebuke here means to contend, and it's often used of laying out a case in a court of law. So Laban has accused Jacob of stealing his gods, and Jacob uh, now has turned the tables because there's no evidence and now Laban is really being tried for his accusations before uh, the judgment of the people that are present there who are acting kind of like the jury, at least in their minds. And now he looks guilty because there's no evidence. <clears throat> Jacob also mentions that he has been hotly pursued by Laban. That means to, to hunt somebody down like an animal. So no fault has been found in Jacob. The relatives then must at least think in their minds and judge that Jacob is acquitted of any wrongdoing. And it looks like Laban's a false accuser. And then we see Jacob rebuking Laban to his face for all the oppression he's given over his years of service. Beginning in verse 38. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and female uh, goats have not miscarried their young. In other words, God has blessed them. They haven't lost anything uh, by usual means. Jacob goes on to say, I haven't eaten any of the rams of your flock. It's all come from my flock and what I've gained through God's blessing. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. So normally, in this type of situation, where there's kind of a master over everything who would be Laban, and there would be shepherds under him like Jacob, the, the shepherd would be able to take care of his family by consignment. He'd get a certain percentage of uh, uh, the flocks uh, just for you know food and things of that nature. And if an animal attacked the flock and killed some of the sheep, or later on, if someone stole them, the shepherd would not be held accountable, but of course Laban held him accountable anyways. If there was a loss by an animal attack, if someone stole it, that came out of the consignment that was owed to Jacob. So every way you look, 
Uh, Jacob is being oppressed by Laban, and uh, he's being treated even less than society would have said was okay in that day. He goes on to say in verse 40, There I was, in the day the drought consumed me, the frost by night, my sleep departed from my eyes. So physically it took a toll on him as well. 20 years of service under Laban. And he goes on to say, Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. So he brings that up again. Never knowing when Laban is going to try to cheat him again by, by changing the terms of what his wages would be. And last time we found that God blessed Jacob greatly in spite of all that Laban did to prevent that. And then Jacob caps his rebuke here by crediting the Lord for his provision and for his protection once again. Unless the God of my father The God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands, and that's why he rebuked you last night. So God knows everything that's going on, and in all this whole situation, he has protected Jacob from Laban. An interesting title of the Lord here is the fear of, of Isaac. And that alludes to God as being awesome, one who can be trusted, and one who should be feared as Laban was discovering. And by these titles, Jacob is really confessing his faith now in the God of Abraham and Isaac, as he said he would if God would take care of him. So it is this God that looks upon the affliction of his people and rebukes their enemies. Now, the last scene is very important. And here we find that the Lord protects Jacob through a covenant of separation. Now, Laban has lost his case. His only option now is to cut an agreement with Jacob which we would call a non-aggression covenant. And this should not be viewed as really a peace treaty since these men do not trust each other and uh, they're agreeing to maintain peaceful relationship, but we know in modern times how all that goes about. So this is an agreement to separate from each other and not to bring harm in the present or the future, and these pillars are going to be a reminder of that. So, let's carry on here. Verse 43. Now, Laban answered. He really doesn't have an answer. He knows that he's guilty and probably looks kind of foolish. But look at his claim. Out of pride, he still cannot get things right. He says, these daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. Like he's going to be generous and go ahead and let them have it. Well, it's funny, he never addresses them as Jacob's wives, only as his daughters. But he, he can't do anything about this situation. What can I do this day 
to these my daughters or to their children whom they have borne. Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So he's understanding God's blessed Jacob and the only way they're, they're going to get along is to separate from each other. So the, the, the heathen, the pagan, is being separated from the faithful, from Jacob who has been chosen of God to carry on the seed back in Genesis chapter 3. And again, Laban and his pride, it, it just shows us how, how pride skews truth and reality. Now, the witness to the covenant is set up beginning in verse 45. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Do you remember what he did when God met him in Bethel? He took up a stone and he made a pillar. He poured oil on it. He consecrated that to God. Now as he leaves uh, Haran, he does the same thing. And what he's doing here is he's recognizing that God is able to provide for him and protect him. He's really, in a sense, coming full circle as he goes back to his homeland. Now, a heap of stones is then gathered up. Um, uh, Let me back up there. Okay, then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. They took stones, they made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahudatha, but Jacob called it Galaid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name is called Galaid, also Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. All right, so the stones are erected. They are going to be assigned to Syrians, Arameans, and Hebrews, We're not going to go past this line, so to speak, this space, in order to harm each other. A meal is eaten, which seals the agreement. And it's interesting here, as you read through the number of couplets um, that you find there. There There are two men leading two groups. There are two heaps raised up. There are two names given in two languages. There are two meals, there are two terms, and there are two deities addressed. Now Laban gives this place an Aramaic name. Jacob gives it a Hebrew name. And both of these names mean the same thing, a heap of witness. And the covenant recognizes now two distinct ethnic groups. Laban is separating from Jacob, and Jacob is separating from Laban, the Aramean-Syrian group from the Hebrew group, and this is going to be something that will carry on through history. Laban also mentions this place as being Mizpah, which means watchtower, because he's calling upon the Lord to watch between the two groups to make sure that neither passes the pillar of witness to harm the other. And of course, you can't always keep your eye on the other person all the time, so they're asking God to do it. <clears throat> now it's interesting that as the terms are brought out in verse 50, Laban says, If you afflict my daughters 
Or if you take otherwise besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Now, isn't it interesting that Laban doesn't want Jacob to afflict his daughters when that's pretty much what he's been doing the last 20 years? So again, pride twists your thinking. But this is part of the agreement. The other part, of course, is they don't come across there at any point in time uh, for the purpose of harming the other group, and God's going to watch over this. Now, the final act is to swear an oath to finalize the covenant. And this is what Laban says. Uh, Here's this heap, verse 51. Here's this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness. This pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, then the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. There's something subtle going on here. Because the God of Abraham is not the only God being addressed. The God of Nahor, the God of their father, that really should be a little g. I'm not sure what it might be if you have a different translation. Because Terah was a polytheistic worshiper. Apparently, so was his son Nahor, because his son Laban is... So he's really calling upon false gods to witness this, not just the Hebrew God, which he may believe in, and of course he's, he's been in contact with him, but that's not his exclusive God. He's relying upon his gods as well, and the gods of his fathers, but Jacob swears again by the fear of his father Isaac, And he's already testified, this is the father of Abraham, this is the father of Isaac, now he's the father of Jacob. And now Jacob offers a sacrifice on the mountain to this God that he's never done before, at least not in our narratives. So as he comes back, he's really fulfilling his promise, saying God has protected me, God has provided for me, and now I'm going to sacrifice to this God and I'm going to serve this God. And then the final meal is eaten here to ratify the covenant. And early the next morning, Laban rises up. He kisses his sons and daughters, and he goes to his place, and he leaves Jacob at his place, and that's where they are separated from each other, never really to meet again. So Jacob has seeing that the Lord has blessed him, and he's learning to depend upon the Lord. And in the Lord's providence, uh, God has fulfilled his word to Jacob. Jacob has recognized that, and Jacob now is at the place where he's going to serve the true God. So what are some things we can take away from this passage? First of all, do you ever sense the Lord's protection in your life? How many times has he protected us, even in our folly, as did Rachel and even Jacob before her? Sometimes God uh, helps us out even when we do things that are foolish. 
How many times has he protected us from enemies that might pursue us today? Sometimes people will mistreat us, like Laban did Jacob. They, uh, they misunderstand us. They might even want to harm us. But the Lord protects us in those situations. We're going to be pursued by this world in which we live, by our own flesh, to act like Laban did, who only cared about himself and what benefited him even at the expense of others. But the Christian trusts God to protect him from that temptation. And instead of being a person who afflicts others, being a person who helps others. Then do we give the Lord credit for all that we are and for all that we have? Do we thank him for his protection, for looking down upon us in our affliction and comforting us in those times? And finally, we need to realize that the Lord has protected us by separating us from this evil world and bringing us into his kingdom. We're under the protective hand of God and no evil can touch us outside of his will. When and if it does, He stands ready to keep us and protect us as he did Jacob. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for these great stories in the Old Testament. As we see uh, men and women of old uh, moving away from their uh, polytheistic backgrounds and uh, their waywardness and their foolishness to place their trust increasingly upon the God who will provide for them and protect them. Lord, help us in our own day to be that kind of person as well, who in the midst of all the things in this world that can go wrong, we know that our God will protect us and provide our needs. Bless us with these thoughts today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.